Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. There's a good bit of you I've not met yet. My name is Luke, if we've not met. Love to meet you after the service. I'm one of the pastors at Legacy Church. Excited to talk today. Um, I've not been up at the pulpit for two weeks, uh, and it's a fun place for me to be. I'm, I love teaching, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to John 3. We're walking through the book of John. We find ourselves in the third chapter today. By the way, some of you have been praying for our family. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, everyone is doing very well. John 3. You know, while you're turning there, I did something a little bit provocative my first year in the ministry as a full-time vocational campus minister. Um, I think it was in 1998. I just dated myself. That was a long time ago, 90s. So I, <laughs> I was at Texas Tech University. We didn't have anyone in our campus ministry. So when I say we had a, a, a busting, vibrant campus ministry, it was with me and my wife in a living room with no furniture in it. That's, that's where we started from. Very excited to be on the campus, and I kind of let my excitement get the best of me, and I put a poster all over the campus. Dorms, dining halls, any building where there was any activity, and hundreds of these posters, just good poster size, and it was of a chiseled and tan midsection, okay? <laughs> I mean, it was cut and carved, in just this golden, perfect magazine tan, except I had a second belly button photoshopped above the first one, right? So there was this aspect of the poster that was meant to draw your attention. You'd see it, you'd double take because you saw something that looked a little bit illicit, I guess, but then you just kind of cringed inside because you didn't know how to compute or what to do with the two belly buttons. <laughs> Underneath it, it said, is it true, can man be born again? Get it? <laughs> Students started tearing it down off the walls. Professors started pulling them down off the walls. I got called into the central office of whatever committee, and they had a talk with me about the posters saying that it was a little bit too illicit. It was too, too uh, provocative, because we all know no one sees a midsection on a college campus ever, right? So we definitely can't have posters up there of that. It was a profound poster, because I think it's a profound statement. A title, to be born again. I think today, though, in pop culture, we've tamed it, maybe hijacked it a little bit, right? I don't know that being born again so much anymore means I have fallen in love with Jesus who has reset and restarted my life. I don't think it means that as much as it is like a card we toss down that could say, like, I'm Republican or I'm vegetarian, right? I mean, how many times have you seen a celebrity or a celebrity athlete come out as one who is born again, and you wonder in the back of your mind, don't know about that. I'm not sure. I mean, it's only for God to judge, but I don't know that I'm buying that. Here's a, here's a small list of some celebrities just in my short lifetime who have come out as being born again. Mariah Carey, Denzel Washington, Bob Dylan, Chris Tucker, and Oprah Winfrey have all vocally said in public record, that they are born again. Now, I think at best, at best, I think what people could mean whenever they say that they are born again is they've been through some life-altering moments. Maybe it was a near-death one, like I fell off a cliff and I survived. So I'm kind of going to redo my life differently with a new perspective. Or I lost my grandfather, and it's caused me to look at my life 
with a little bit more scrutiny. I'm born again. I'm going to do things differently than I've done it in the past. I think it could mean that in the best of situations. At the worst, I'm afraid it's just used to widen a market share to a wider audience so people can enjoy you from all walks of life. But when Jesus mentioned this, being born again, back then when it was first uttered, a phrase we use all the time, did it mean the same thing that Kanye West means whenever he says, I am born again? What about your neighbor when they say it? Do they really understand what it means to be born again? Or is it just like saying, I'm paleo? I think culture's muddied up the waters for us a little bit. The most important question we're going to ask today is how does being reborn, reset, affect your daily, everyday, predictable, boring, normal, routine lifestyle? How does it change all of that? That's what you call applied theology, right? So one thing we try to do in sermons as we talk to you is not just teach you theology. Today you will learn a couple big chunks of theology. or seminary classes just on some of the things I'm going to blow right through, right? It's good to learn theology, to understand God with a correct lens. But if you cannot take those things and apply them to your normal life, then what really is the point? So we're going to take what we learn today and try to apply it to our everyday Life, And we get to do that by looking at an awkward conversation, which is something we all have, right? And then when you add Jesus to the conversation, it just makes it that much more awkward. Jesus is actually having an awkward conversation with the new character we're going to meet today in Nicodemus, right? This thing is loaded with skepticism, doubt, frustration. It even looks at a cursory reading like they're talking past each other a little bit, if you've ever read this passage before. Today, and and you notice this morning, we didn't start off with a central city announcement or pray for central city. That's because this sermon is going to help us understand a community that is far from Jesus a little bit better. So think big on this. Now, it is true, whenever you read the Bible or even teach the Bible, there is one interpretation, one true interpretation of what the author means for the recipient to gather from the text. But there could be many applications, right? So what that means is, is we can read John 3, and there might be an interpretation that I have, and there might be an interpretation that you have that might be different. And if it's different, we both can't be right. We both may be wrong. One of us might be right, but we both cannot be right. Today, we're going to use an application off of the correct interpretation. It's going to be very missional, okay? Because we do believe that if you are a Christian, you are therefore a missionary. And I think this passage is going to help us be better missionaries. So I want you to hear it through that lens as best as you can. So let's jump in in chapter 3, verse 1. It's a very cool passage. The Lord has seen very clearly in this. I'm excited about this one. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pause right there because we're seeing a new individual introduced, Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was part of the ruling class of the Pharisees. There were about 6,000 Pharisees, as we've talked about before, roaming around this region. But there was kind of like a a puddle of them that were a little bit more elite than the others. It was the ruling class. There were 70 of them. He was one of them. 
It was a little bit of rare air that he got to breathe. He would clock in every day, and the high priest himself would be working shoulder to shoulder with him. It'd be like today's version of maybe the Supreme Court or something like that. And because the position was high, and it had a lot of weight to it, he had a big reputation. He had an image, a weight that came with that role that he carried around, which is why he's having this meeting at night. Did you notice that? It would look bad for a teacher of this elite status to come to a very basic carpenter and ask him to teach the teacher, which is what you see. Add to this the fact that Nicodemus is not going just representing himself, but representing some guys that are kind of along with him. Did you notice in the text where he says, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher come from God. That's because he was going representing others. Maybe they were in the elite class, maybe they were just Pharisees, but there were other religious leaders and authorities who believed in Jesus, who were enticed, who were curious maybe, but they knew the danger and the stigma that would be carried along with going and talking to him. In fact, we're not going to teach this passage, but in John 12, several chapters down the road, we see that many authorities will believe in Jesus, but because they were scared of the Pharisees and scared of getting put out of the synagogue, they did not confess it. Now, being kicked out of the synagogue back then is not like getting kicked out of, you know, Gold's Gym or something like that, or getting kicked out of a club of some kind. It meant your welfare. It meant your well-being, just as a person in that culture. It's a big deal. And they feared this, and they feared man more than they feared God, so they kept it all inside. This is an example of that. Peer pressure is driving this meeting to happen in total secrecy. By the way, we know about this, don't we? I mean, this is still happening. Because being a Christian, not a Kanye West Christian, sorry, but being a real, true Christian, it means carrying a stigma. And those who are curious about it see that stigma. They're not sure they want to take it on. That's part of counting the costs, by the way. I've been reading a lot about this little back and forth Um, which I think has probably already fizzled and is out of the news cycle now, between the mayor of New York and Chick-fil-A. Anyone been reading about that? It's hilarious. I didn't even know that there were only three Chick-fil-A's in Manhattan. I thought there'd be like 48 of them or something, but there's only three, and the lines go out the door, down the street, around the corner, all the way up to Fifth Avenue. Big lines, because we line up here in East Tennessee for a chicken sandwich. You know in New York, man, they're gonna wait an hour for a $6 sandwich. These lines, it's crazy. The mayor says, I'll never eat there. And if you're a true New Yorker, you shouldn't either. Why is he saying that? Because several years ago, the owner and founder said that he believed that marriage is between one man and one woman. And he called that hate speech. He was a bigot. Listen, the day is coming. I could argue it's already here. Where you will say things that Jesus has said. You will do things that Jesus is done, and you will be labeled a hateful bigot. You will transgress someone else's civil rights. It's already happening. There is a stigma that belongs to those who say, I follow Jesus. Now, we are not put out of synagogues today, but the labels that will come your way, my way, they're the same labels. They're going to hurt And because of Jesus' words being offensive to many, those who are curious about Jesus are aware of the stigma. They're cautious of it. You know what's interesting in this passage, something I, I don't typically pick up, is that Jesus never rebukes Nicodemus for being secretive. He never calls him out for using the back door, right? 
That's a temptation of me to do that to people. People want answers. People want to know more about God, but they're guarding their image, and this shouldn't offend you. This shouldn't offend you or, or, or even worry you. I mean, we don't see a picture of Jesus, hands on his hips, going, well, look who's here. Nicodemus, oh, I shouldn't talk so loud. Someone might hear that you're here, you know. I want to jack your reputation up or anything. We don't see that kind of mockery or attitude from Jesus. He's very gentle and he's very thoughtful. Just because people are guarded does not mean that they are not searching. You will bump into people and they will blow you off. And a lot of times they're searching. They're cautious about the stigma that comes with being a follower of Jesus. They are counting the costs many times, right? So among the high rulers, there seems to be this understanding, this collective understanding that God is seemingly, apparently, handling Jesus in a peculiar way, kind of like God would handle Moses or one of the prophets, right? We see this. So they're impressed. They're intrigued. They're just not captured or devoted to Jesus. And I think we understand all about that, ministering to people who are intrigued, who ask questions, but they're hesitant. And they're not captured, they're not devoted, but they're wondering. And I think we could really look at how Jesus handles them here and learn a lot by being gentle, thorough, patient, patient again, explaining it in a different way, dealing with, with, their, with their frustration, being careful with them. In fact, Jesus is so gentle that did you notice in this passage, he answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't even ask. It feels like he's talking past him. Here Nicodemus says, hey, we see that you're doing some cool stuff that only God can do. We're seeing that. And Jesus answers him, saying, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That feels awkward to me. They're not really talking about the same thing anymore. I love that Jesus does this because he's speaking and answering questions that Nicodemus is not asking, but he knows that Nicodemus needs to hear. And, and Christ does this to you and me as well. I love that Jesus speaks to the innermost questions of my heart that I don't have the courage to put words to. Have you found yourself like that? Having a question, and I mean a real question, a question that you're scared to put language to, a question that you're scared to say in front of somebody else, yet Jesus sees it and he starts to minister there. He does this because he's thoughtful, he loves us that much. I think it also helps us as missionaries, and I always borrow from the model of Jesus when it comes to missions, because just as he was sent into the world, so we are sent into the world. And I think we can do the same thing. Listen, don't be afraid, as you're talking to those who are far from Jesus, don't be afraid to tell them, I think you're asking the wrong question. I've said this a bunch to people. Oh yeah, well Luke, answer me this, you know? I don't know that I believe that the world could be created in seven literal days not gonna get lost in that debate. Just kindly say, I don't think you really are ask, I don't think you really wanna know the answer to that question. I think you're asking the wrong question. Could it be that you're asking whether or not God is so powerful, yet so detailed, yet so fast, yet so thorough at the same time? Because if he is, he is like that with you. If he could create the cosmos like that, what can he do with the human heart? Could this be what you're asking? Well, Luke, I just don't know. I mean, if I was born in a, a Muslim country, then I would be a Muslim. If I'm born in a Christian country, I'd be a Christian. So, so answer me that. They don't really want to know those answers, understand. 
Nicodemus is not looking for information, just like we are not always looking for information with our goofy questions. We're looking for love, peace, acceptance, and freedom. Jesus is so thoughtful here, he does not even deal with Nicodemus' smokescreen. He says, nah, listen, this is what you need to hear. This is really why you came. This is what's rattling around in your gut. And so here's the answer. Verse 4, let's keep moving. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, real quickly. Nicodemus is not responding in in ignorance. He's responding a little bit in unbelief. How can a man, an aged man, who's been so thoroughly shaped and molded by his culture, his upbringing, his family, his job, his nation, just hit the reset button? How can that happen? Where everything is new, a totally new paradigm, new king, which means a new kingdom, which is what he's talking about, New currency in this kingdom, new residents of this kingdom, new calendar in this kingdom, new fluency in this kingdom, new celebrations in this kingdom, new wins, new losses, new wars, new everything. Everything changes. But he doesn't understand any of that, and he's an old guy. Jesus, answer me this. Reborn at this point with who I am? I don't know. So Jesus kindly teaches the teacher what it means to be born again, and no, it does not mean being a baby all over again. What he does is he picks two things that babies can understand, though, wind and water. Wind and water are the two teaching aids that any kid could understand, and certainly an elite teacher would be able to comprehend. And I think it's going to help us a bunch. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it does not mean before I tell you what it does mean. It does not mean being baptized. There's about six different theories on what this means. That's one of the, like, second most predominant ones, maybe. does not mean being baptized, okay? That's not the point of this passage. You won't find it mentioned again. And we all know, if you've been here longer than one week, that we believe as a church that the Bible teaches that it is not the activity of man that gives salvation, but it's the perfect activity of God that has brought salvation, okay? So we know it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? You have to remember, Jesus is speaking to someone with a certain knowledge set, experience, history, and understanding. We have to kind of step in his shoes just for a minute. Because Nicodemus had a thorough understanding of the law and the Old Testament and the prophets, right? Everything that encompassed what we say is the Old Testament, he had a good understanding of. He knew what water meant. Water was symbolic. It was symbolic for purifying, cleansing, washing. These are the three most prominent meanings of what water would do. In fact, three weeks ago, if you were here, we looked at how Jesus turned water into wine. Before that water was wine, it was a certain kind of water because it was in these purifying jars. It was meant to wash utensils, cleanse hands, make pure. That's how they understood water. So whenever he applies water 
and puts it tandem with the Holy Spirit, all he's doing is saying, this is kind of what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's his role in this place, is to wash and to cleanse and to purify. Kind of like whenever you see John the Baptist say, hey, one's going to come after me, and he's going to baptize in power, in fire, in the Holy Spirit. He's using fire there. Why? Because it empowers, it enlivens us to action. Here it's water. That's why we're seeing this. Remember, he's speaking to a man who has this internal Google search of everything that is Old Testament, and he would have known. He would have known. Even though we might scratch our heads, he knew this is what he is talking about. I think Jesus is directing his gaze to a specific passage, and I'm going to tell you why here in a minute. But in Ezekiel 36, and you don't have to turn there. You can stay where you're at. We'll put this on the screen. In Ezekiel 36, God is saying something specific. And in verse 24, he says this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And here it is, key verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's a lot of theology. I just dropped a bunch. It's actually called pneumatology whenever it's the theology of the Holy Spirit, right? And this is a pretty weighty thing and a pretty weighty action of what the Holy Spirit does whenever he comes and regenerates our heart. But how do we apply that to our daily lives? What will it mean for you this afternoon? I think the most powerful image is that to be reborn means living a life where we are not scrubbing clean clothes in order to be clean. We're not scrubbing and washing clean clothes that God has already cleansed and already washed with his Holy Spirit. You see, Nicodemus was part of this group of guys that would bring sacrifices to the temple. If you were to go to the temple back then, blood everywhere all the time. Always some goat being cut, ox being killed, pigeons getting their heads snapped, Death everywhere, blood, it was gross, right? And it was all the time, it wasn't infrequent, it was frequent, why? Because it, they needed that to cover the sins. Sin required the shedding of blood. There was always sins, they are always shedding blood. It was constant. It had to have felt like an exercise in futility for these guys. Like bailing water out of a canoe that's full of holes. That's why the author of Hebrews says this, and this we will put up on the screen. This is out of the J.B. Phillips translation. This is the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 saying, the law was incapable of perfecting the souls of those who offered the regular annual sacrifices. For if it had, surely, the, sac the sacrifices would have been discontinued on the grounds that the worshipers, having been really cleansed, would have had no further consciousness of sin. In practice... However, the sacrifices amounted to an annual reminder of sins, for the blood of bulls and goats cannot really remove the guilt of sin. It can't remove, it, it just won't wash away the guilt. You see, that's what something only Jesus can do. He removes the guilt. He's the best and last priest, giving the best and last sacrifice, ending the sacrifices, ending the priesthood, ending even the temple itself. He, he cataclysmically tumps the whole sacrifice system on its head and pushes it away. But still today, you and me, 
we find ourselves acting as a priest and bringing sacrifices for our sins. We just pick it up right where they left off. We try to scrub clean clothes and make them even cleaner. What does that look like for you, by the way, to be a priest and to bring sacrifices in order to clean yourself, kind of knowing deep down inside you're just going to get dirty again? Because we all do something a little bit different. I'll give you a good example of what I'm talking about. I probably won't hit everybody in the room, but I think I'm going to hit close. One of the things we do is we like to make ourselves feel rotten after we sin. That's part of how we cleanse ourselves, wash ourselves. We make ourselves just feel horrible. Uh, Trevor, put that cycle up on the screen. There's a cycle we go through. Sin brings guilt, which will bring punishment, which brings freedom. If you could remember those four things, it'll be very helpful for you. Sin brings guilt, brings punishment, brings freedom. So let's put it in, um, I get, I'm making this up as I go along, like, like normal terms. So say like one of my kids, we don't have a dog, but if we did, one of my kids, they kick, they kick the dog. They punt the dog pretty good, right? <laughs> Calm down, we don't have a dog, we'd never kick the dog. But if we did, that would be a sin. And it would be likely that one of our kids, whoever the guilty party is, would feel horrible. There'd be a guilt wash over. Oh my gosh, I've kicked the dog. I shouldn't have kicked the dog. Jesus wouldn't have kicked that dog. I kicked the dog, you know? Guilt, punishment, you're grounded. You're getting whooped, whatever that, whatever that is. But after the punishment brings a freedom, doesn't it? Because the punishment has been exhausted. That means the guilt can go away and you can live in freedom, right? And we understand this because Jesus took a punishment for us, for our sins, we get to live in freedom forever. The blood of Jesus washes away the consciousness of our guilt. Do you see how this works? Do you see the intrusion of the cross and how we handle our own sin? What we do, though, often, we will bring punishment to ourselves after we feel guilt, after we've sinned. We'll bring punishment to ourselves in order to manipulate and maneuver freedom to come faster. Right? I hate this the feeling of guilt inside, and I, I, don't, I don't like what I feel, and I, you know what I'll do? I'll punish myself. That way I can finally get back to God and feel comfortable around God again. That's how we become priests. That's how we offer sacrifices. Our sacrifices look a little bit different, though, right? We'll do even good things as a sacrifice. Maybe you're struggling with some pervasive sin. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something that's been horrible. What you, what some of us will buy books. Lots of books. Read lots of articles because we want to educate ourselves in order to bring freedom. It's a way of punishing ourselves. Or maybe we'll get rid of all of our media so that we can do the reading. Gone goes Netflix. Gone goes YouTube. Gone goes everything that you do on a phone, on a tablet, or on a TV because you're going to purge yourself. You're going to whoop yourself. You're going to pay the price. You're going to hurt. You're going to fast anything and feel really rotten inside as much as you can. Fasting, it's a good thing, but we can use it sometimes to manipulate a new freedom to come. What about giving and sacrificing for service or, or money? I'm going to write big checks. I'm going to show Jesus that I'm serious this time. I'm really going to pay the price. Right? Or I'm going to start signing up for things. Every team that you have available, I'm on the ops team, I'm a musician, even though I'm not a musician, I'm going to be up on stage, you know, I'm going to do something to pay off this deal and to clean myself. Accountability is another 
big way, something that's very good that we use as a priest to offer a sacrifice to God. This is a key place, by the way. I'm not going to try to take a, a too, too big of a, of a rabbit trail. A lot of you don't employ accountability at all. That's a different sermon. I'd love to preach. It'd be an excellent sermon, I promise, right? We need accountability. Some of us will use that accountability to make ourselves feel extra rotten. Oh, I've done something bad. I've done something really horrible. And when we confess, we want our, our partner or the one we're confessing to, we want them to be mad at us. We want them to see us go, God, I can't believe you did it again. We've been talking about this and you failed again. Are you kidding me? What's it going to take? There's a piece of us, many of us, that likes that. Because if that punishment feels extra dark and extra deep, that means that the freedom will be that much better. I've actually had people tell me, I struggle with you, Luke, because you're not hard on me whenever I confess sins to you. I wish you'd be tougher on me. I wish you'd make me feel that they're just trying to clean themselves. You see, there's all kinds of different faucets we could wash our hands underneath. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with confessing your sins or reading a book or writing a check. It just makes a poor lamb. We make poor priests. Some of you today, if anything you need to hear, you need to hear this. Stop scrubbing what is clean. Stop scrubbing what the Holy Spirit has already come and sprinkled clean water on, making your pure. I mean, your, your performance isn't going to ever make you pure. Jesus' performance makes you pure. If you can only be comfortable around Christ whenever you are, have a perfect lifestyle, then what you're doing is you're projecting that onto Jesus, and you're saying he only likes to be around you whenever you are perfect. That's a false view of God. Jesus has done the work. i got to move on. Because he does not just use water in its key role in the Holy Spirit, but also wind, wind in the Spirit. We start to see a picture of what wind does. And that's another very helpful picture. It's only actually been in this last century that we've done a pretty decent job of tracking where wind comes from, where it goes, the wind speed. But with all of our technology, we still can't do anything about it. You know what I'm saying? Except go inside instead of stand outside. That's about all the control we have over the wind. It still does what it wants to do. It still moves according to its own decisive will. That same year I brought up earlier, in, in whenever, whenever I first started this, that first year I was at Texas Tech, I went on my first storm chasing experience. Lubbock is full of storm chasers because it's right there in the gut of Tornado Alley. Tornadoes are always dropping up and down all over the place, you know. So I had a friend. He said, hey, there's tornado activity on the edge of the county. You want to jump in the truck with me? and We'll go out there and check it out. And I thought I was totally adequately prepared for that because I saw Twister, just like many of you. So <laughs> I know what to do if a tornado comes. So we get in the little truck, little Dotson pickup, and we speed out to the county line. And here I'm with this guy with all kinds of master's degrees in wind technology, engineering, whatever. He's brilliant, right? There's equipment everywhere being filtered through a brilliant mind, and it was not very long before we realized that wind had its own decisive will. Doesn't matter what your fancy stuff says. You're not in the right place. That's what we felt like really quickly. I saw two rabbits flying right by the truck, in the air flying. Rabbits! And that's when I said, we must leave, you know. <laughs> I don't care how smart you are, bro. It's not the place for us. Hurricane season. You see the news. 
Is this hurricane going to hit Florida or not? I mean, usually bashes through the Keys in Miami. I mean, if there's ever a hurricane that hits Florida, it's always hitting that little area. But do you ever see the spaghetti models? It's like a thousand different things that the hurricane could do. It's most likely going to hit Florida, but it could go to Mexico or it could hit New York. We don't really know. Here's all of the possibilities that it could do. And that's with the best technology possible at our fingertips. But we can't birth it. We can't birth wind. We can't control winds. We can just watch it. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you know how you don't know how wind works? You don't know where it comes from, and you don't even know how to control it. You know that? Yes, I know that, Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit works. That's how the Holy Spirit changes people and sprinkles them clean. It just kind of moves according to its own will. As a pastor, as a preacher, I don't cause the Holy Spirit to bring new birth in any of you more than I can create or control the wind to do whatever it does. As missionaries, as Christians, whenever we preach the gospel to others, we are merely sowing seeds. What the Lord does with that seed, we know not. We just sow, we plow, we push it out there. It's the Spirit's will that is decisive, not our will that is decisive. This is, by the way, is called irresistible grace or sovereign grace. This is the second big piece of theology we're about to apply. And some people in here really struggle with this, and I understand why. I used to as well. Irresistible grace, by the way, does not mean that we cannot resist grace. We do it all the time. We resist grace. We resist the Holy Spirit all the time. Isn't that what Stephen, our first martyr, said to the people around him, his accusers? <laughs> you stiff-necked people, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Here you are doing it again, just like your parents did. We do the same thing until it pleases God to overcome our resistance. Then he will not be frustrated. He gets what he wants. It's his will that's decisive. Not our will that's decisive. This means that God gets all the credit for blasting through our badness and overturning our hearts. We get none of the credit. He gets all of the credit. When the Holy Spirit changes your vision to see Jesus properly, not through a cracked lens, not through broken glasses, but really see who Jesus is, you cannot not receive him. Irresistible grace. Sovereign grace. You cannot not receive him. This is why you see passages all over the Bible. We're going to fly through them. We're not going to teach them. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. God's the initiator. We follow. Acts 13, 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God initiates. We follow. Romans 9, 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He leads. We follow. That's simply what sovereign grace means. Now, how do we apply this? Because otherwise it's just up there in the air. How do we bring it down? What does it mean for you? This is not so much an application that would go to our hands, but an application that would go to our hearts. Is God's sovereign work and your lack of control something that excites you or repels you? How are you doing with that sovereign grace thing? 
How we view this, I think, hangs on how needy we see ourselves. If we feel like we're capable to pull our own legs out of the mud and save ourselves, I think it's going to be easy for us to say, I don't need that. It actually offends me that you think that I didn't have anything to do with my own salvation. Of course I had everything to do with my salvation. And listen, I'm with you to a certain point, right? Because don't, those of you who are Christians, don't we remember making that decision? I do. I had something to do with it. I remember my heart pounding out of my chest. My hands were all sweaty. I was counting the costs. I knew it was going to change a lot of things. I was excited, yet scared, but resolved. I was weak, yet I was courageous at all, this, all the same time. It was a flurry of things. And I remember making an executive decision that I will turn from sin and follow Jesus. That really happened. But only after he got in there and started messing me up. After he led and drew me and sprinkled clean water on my heart changing me from the inside out, giving me the ability to even see the blood on my hands and the passion of his glory for me. So we apply that. Seeing this as good news, I think it's going to depend on how needy you see yourself. Friend, your second birth needs as much help as your first one did from you. Consider that for a moment. I mean, you were about as involved in your spiritual rebornness as an orphan is involved in being adopted, or a prisoner is involved in being set free, or someone who is dead being involved in being brought to life. We're just not that helpful. We are brought along by God's goodness to us. So if you see yourself like Nicodemus, it's going to be easy for you to throw your arms up and just say, I don't like this. I don't like it. I don't like it. Jesus, you're telling me that the wind just does what it does and it's going to decide who it's going to touch and who it's going to blow right on by and that removes the control away from me. I don't get to do anything. Don't I get a say in this? Or, or, you could be the person that says, my goodness, it could have blown right by me. God's breath could have just swooped right by me, but it landed on me and not because of anything I did. He cleansed me. He washed me and changed me. And then all I can do, friend, is just break you down on, on bent knee. All I can do is just evoke a deep sense of worship from you. I think Jesus, I think, Jesus is using wind here to go along with water by going back to the same passage. This is why I said earlier, I think he's pointing to Ezekiel 36. Because after Ezekiel 36 comes Ezekiel 37, right? And the very first few verses of this sound a lot like this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, God says, or this is what Ezekiel says, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. Death. No animation, no movement. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, behold, I will cause breath. That's pneuma, that's spirit, that is wind. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover your skin, and put breath in you. 
and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I don't think you could really understand John 3 without looking at Ezekiel 36. I think those passages go together. I think Nicodemus, being a brilliant Old Testament scholar, would have quickly gone back and forth. You see, the wind is God's spirit moving and animating us according to his design, his purpose, his will, his desire. And when he raises us up, he raises us from dead. We are dead. But hear me, don't be confused by our roles here. Don't be confused. We work, we decide, and we make movements that have meaning to them. This will be an important passage if you want to understand this. In Philippians 2.12, I know this is a lot of teaching, bear with me. Philippians 2.12. As you have always obeyed, Paul says to the church, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who's working right there? We are. Greatly working it out. Intricately and thoroughly working it out, mind you. For it is God who works in you. Who's working now? God is working. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both God is working here and we are working here. God's will is decisive. And because of that, we employ our will to God's glory. God gives us grace according to his decision, and he gives us an ability to trust, just an ability to trust. So what do we do? We trust to the depth of our being. He gives us an ability to sing and to worship from the depths of our heart. So what do we do? We sing and we worship from the depths of our heart. He gives us an ability to sacrifice and lay our lives down. So what do we do? We do that to the best of our abilities for God's glory and for our good. You see how this works? We're not automatons being drug along. He works, we work. But do you feel threatened by this? Helpless, maybe a little bit, maybe? Are you thrilled, exhilarated by it? I've been all of the above when it comes to this type of doctrine. But I love, I love, and I'm floored that God can blast through my badness and rescue me according to his will before I did anything beautiful or good for him. Even today, I was thinking about this when I was getting ready this morning, putting on my shoes, brushing my teeth. Spiritually speaking, even today, I still can't get out of my own way. You know what I mean when I say that? I can't even get out of my own way. I have to be led, not just into salvation, I have to be led today for crying out loud. This is why you see passages all the time that sound like this in the Bible. Incline my heart towards your testimonies. We're asking God to do something we should be able to do. God, you incline my heart. How about this one? Open my eyes. Why don't you open your eyes? We need him to open our eyes. And we open our eyes. Lead me not into temptation. You should be able to avoid temptation. You should be able to go right instead of go left. And we do to God's glory but we're asking him to go before us, to lead us, even in our growth. I gotta move on, we gotta finish. Verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to and what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
Here's the spoiler a little bit later on on Nicodemus. He ends up being a different man later on in this book. We will see. He actually does some pretty incredible and honorable things for Jesus, not in the dark, but in the broad daylight. And the price tag was a little bit more than his reputation when he did it at that time. It's likely he became one who was reborn. It's very likely, very likely, that he was born again. So here are these things. God cleansed you, friend. Stop scrubbing. God animated your bones which were dead, so start thinking. God is working in you deeply, so start working. People will be hesitant. Be gentle. You will be labeled. Don't panic. Don't panic. Go ahead and stand with me. Listen, some of you are very far from Jesus trying to get close. And maybe today would be a day where you feel like, like Nicodemus, you have questions. Or maybe you're beyond questions and you feel like, I really want to make a decision. I feel like he's already moved on me, but I feel like I need to work out my salvation. I feel like he's already worked it out, but I feel like I need to work it out now. I need to answer. Today's going to be a great day. Because we're going to be right down here, me and my bride and Kevin and Rebecca. Raise your hands. Thank you. I made that sound like a really big command. Raise your hands. Thank you for raising your hands. We will be down here, and you can come and talk to us. If you're at any place, in any stage in that, working things out. Some of you, you are not far trying to get close. You are close, but you're actually acting like you are far because you're still scrubbing. Scrubbing what is already white. Scrubbing what is already clean, trying to punish yourself. That's not noble, friend. It's heresy. It's not noble. It's heretical. Today would be a day that as we take communion and we, we sing, you just relax and celebrate what God has done, knowing that you could be comfortable around God, not because of your perfect living, but because of the perfect living of Jesus, who took a punishment so you could be free. You could enjoy him when you worship. Your worship today doesn't have to be an application for him to to love you again. Your worship today doesn't have to be a, a resume of maybe God can come one step closer. Your worship can be an answer to the fact that God has come all the way here in the person of Jesus, putting flesh on to be with us. You'd be free to worship, not obligated, free. Today could be that for you. I want to read a passage over you and then pray. 1 Peter 1. It's a great passage discovering and speaking about being born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being such a good lamb, ending forever mankind's attempt to punish ourselves or to punish each other or to punish creation or to do anything to get back into your good graces. Punishment has been exhausted on your son that we could live in freedom, cleansed from the conscious guilt that that haunts us and, and, and tries to trip us. We could worship freely today. And Father, help us have a heart for this city that is gentle, 
that is thoughtful. Even some of us today are working with people that have questions that are behind their questions. They're asking questions that they don't really even want answered, but they do want peace and acceptance and freedom. Lord, we know this. Give us a wisdom to see what they're really asking. Lord, I so bad want to do what you do whenever you look at Nicodemus and you blow right by a smoke screen and you really address his heart. Can we do that, Father? Will you let us do this with Knoxville? Will you let us look at the people that we're so close to and say, let me really, really speak to your heart. The Lord wants to say something to the depth of your being right now. Can we be gentle and thorough and patient? Lord, can we not mock those who, who, are, or who are guarding themselves and guarding their reputation? Can we be a church of missionaries that look just like you, good at teaching, gentle in attitude? Father, you were so kind to us. I thank you for drawing us close. Thank you for giving us a new heart, sprinkled clean and animated by your Holy Spirit. You're so very, very good to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.